0: All right, welcome to the Mentis Podcast. Today we have Zach Haptonstall from Rise Forty Eight Equity. Zach, I appreciate you joining today.
1: Yeah, thanks so much, Nick. Really excited to be on the show here, and look forward to providing some value to the listeners.
0: Well, you certainly have had a very busy few years. Looking at your portfolio here, it's quite um, quite focused on two different markets. So, could you tell us what you're seeing in those markets, and you know where are your, your focus for the, for the next two years or, you know, maybe even just the next 12 months.
1: Yeah. So we, we started in Phoenix and we're, you know, our corporate headquarters is based in Phoenix. Um, we've, we've purchased, you know, 39 different assets over $1.5 billion worth of multifamily in the Phoenix market. So we're, you know, we're the number one buyer in Arizona last year. I think we're number three, the last five years. So we have a pretty good pulse on on what's happening here right now. We have a little bit over 5,500 units in Phoenix. We, we just expanded to Dallas. Um, in uh, December of 2022. So we open up an office there. We have a, we have a full staff there. Um, and kind of give you and the listeners an idea too, Nick, is like we're, we're completely vertically integrated. So we do all the property management, house, construction management, you know, control our supply chain. So across the two markets, we now have over 200 plus full-time W-2 employees. So we have a pretty good pulse on what's happening operationally because we we own the, the management company right so we see what's happening day to day and so what's happened in Phoenix Dallas and really across the country the last 12 months is that as everybody knows interest rates went up very quickly and um, what's happened is that values of multifamily properties are down anywhere from 15 to 25 percent okay in the last 12 months across the country and it's pretty much all because of interest rates because you know as your debt gets more expensive, People have less purchasing power. Um, At the same time, you've seen organic rent growth normalize and decelerate across the entire country the last 12 months as, you know, that big surge we saw after COVID has really slowed down. And so I I think that the last five to seven years or more across the country, the reality is, is that most people could go buy a a value-add multifamily deal, and they don't actually have to add any value. They don't have to renovate uh, units and execute a business plan, and you can rely on organic appreciation, cap rate compression, and sell the deal, and and you look like a genius, right? And, And we've been benefactors of that as well, but, you know, we feel fortunate in the sense that we've been able to truly build out infrastructure where we can renovate units on schedule, on budget, we've renovated over a 1000 units the last 24 months in Phoenix, that's going to be critical going forward for for all sponsors and for all investors who are looking at deals is, you know, what is your operational infrastructure because you you can no longer rely on organic rent growth, you have to truly be able to renovate these units on schedule and on budget, provide a higher quality product for tenants if you want to push the rent and and really force that appreciation so um, to kind of give you an outlook. You know we're still very bullish on multifamily. You know we're we're still very well insulated. We've always taken you know lower leverage. We have interest rate caps. We, we can go into all that stuff, Nick. However you want to go with it. But um, bottom line is right now we're still actively buying deals, okay? Because it, it's 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 shifted. The last six to nine months it has become a buyer's market, okay? And and prior to that, five to seven years, it's been a seller's market. Well, you know it's funny, Nick. A lot of people the last five years I've talked to are saying, well, the market's overheated. It's too hot. I'm waiting for a recession and I'm going to start buying up deals. Well, the recession is here, okay? So it's like all those people that said they're waiting for it, the deals are t- discounted by 20 25%. So like we're buying deals right now in Phoenix and Dallas at a much lower basis than, than we were getting, you know, the last few years. And we're able to mitigate against interest rates with the way we structure the financing. So we think it's a good time to buy. There's very little competition right now. Most of the private equity groups are on the sidelines. Most syndicators cannot raise equity from retail investors because of economic uncertainty. So that's kind of you know like a quick snapshot of what we're seeing right now in, in both those markets.
0: So one, one particular thing that I was watching with the Phoenix market is the new construction and how many new units are coming on, uh, on board, certainly in the Texas markets as well. But I think there was a, a big, big push right after kind of the pandemic and people moving out of california were kind of just jumping over the border is there any concern about over construction or you know is it is the market just going to absorb it all and you know you're kind of kind of feeling bullish re- regardless of, of how many new units are coming on
1: yeah great great question See, that's a big that's been a, a big headline as far as like new supply to phoenix market so People who are not familiar with the Phoenix market, like when you have, when you have like RealPage, for example, you know, economists at RealPage, um, which is putting out a lot of this data, and we, we're subscribed to RealPage. So we pay them, you know, thousands of dollars a year for their data. Basically, when they're talking about the Phoenix MSA, they're including this massive metro. Okay. Infill Phoenix, which is where we own all of our properties, Infill Metro Phoenix, which is like Phoenix, Glendale, Tempe, Mesa, Scottsdale, there is no land available to build new apartments. Okay, it's, it's basically landlocked and has been for a long time. All of the new build is in the far southwest, far southeast, which is literally 45 to 60 minutes or more away from Metro Phoenix. Okay, because that's where there's actually land to build. And so that's where all the new supply is. And so if you're buying deals out there, then yes, you, you may be competing with new supply. But for us, I mean, it, it depends on what the sponsor's strategy is and, and what type of deal you're investing in. Like for us, We focus exclusively on value-add workforce housing. So pretty much all 1980s uh, build apartment buildings, okay? So like this is workforce housing demographic where the majority of the population lives. You could build a brand new apartment right next to one of my properties and I don't really care because that's not my demographic. I'm not competing with them. Those class A properties are competing with people buying homes, okay? Because those rents are so so high of 2,500 to 4,000 a month. Our average rent across our 5,500 units is between 12 to 1,300 dollars a month. Okay, now that, that's after we've renovated a lot of them, and we do a high-level scope. You know, stainless steel appliances, quartz countertops, brand new cabinets. Um, so, you know, the way that we see it from our perspective is that that new supply really does not impact us whatsoever because you know our tenants can't afford that. It's 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 not our it's not our competition, and they're competing with single-family homes. And then if you consider geographically, it's so far away that it it is even less of a a competition. And so, you know, I do think that um, if you're a developer and you're doing new build or you're buying new build deals, then yeah, you should be concerned about that um, because there's more and more supply. The reality is that they're not building any more class B workforce housing because the cost to build is so expensive that you have to command premium rents in order to, to make that deal pencil. And to command premium rents, you have to have a very luxurious, amenitized, you know, class A type of property. And so that's what that business plan looks like. And so, yeah, so for us, we're not concerned about new build apartments in Phoenix. We're not concerned about build to rent. Because again, you have to make, like the, some of the data shows you can make like $90,000 or more a year to, to rent one of these build to rent, you know, units. It's, it's crazy. And so like, we, we don't think, and this is just our strategy. I mean, I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I think new development will get crushed this year and next year because we're already starting to see in Phoenix a lot of those Class A tenants are trickling down into our more affordable space because they're still getting a nice, you know, A class type of finish interior with subway tile backsplash, the stainless steel, all that stuff. They don't get all the sexy amenities, and it's an older building, but it's more affordable. And so, um, so yeah, it's it's not a big it's not a big concern for us. Um, but in general, I mean, that, that's something to look at in all the markets, right? Is like, what is the supply? What is absorption? One of my friends is one of the top developers here in Phoenix. And he told me that there's only a handful of builders who can actually, who are actually available. And they're so backlogged that most of this quote unquote new supply in the pipeline is not even actually going to get built. It's not even going to be delivered for years. And a lot of these guys that bought land a few years ago and got it entitled, they literally can't get it built. And so they're trying to sell it off. And so, um, you know, there's always, there's always different, um, you know, perceptions and things like that, but I can tell you locally, Um, what we've seen the last nine to 12 months as, as interest rates have gone up is we've seen a ton of leasing demand for our product. We're having no issues hitting and exceeding pro forma rent. So that's kind of, you know, our
0: perspective. So kind of living in that B, B plus, maybe even like in an A minus type of, type of product is kind of where you guys are really feeling insulated, feeling pretty good about, about, you know, the world as it sits today. Let's talk about construction. If you have, you know, if that many units being turned over, you likely have seen the construction cost increases. Obviously, we're seeing uh, rents increase uh, on the other side to offset those, those costs. But maybe, is there anything that you're doing to uh, you know, try to mitigate uh, some of those, those increases? Are you, you know hiring somebody as a project manager just to shop and reshop and shop again until you find a better price? Or you know, what's your approach to trying to just keep that as a, a minimal exposure?
1: Yeah, no, it's a great question, Nick. And so it's a great question because the majority of operators, and I'm friends with a lot of them here in Phoenix, majority of them right now, they can't, they cannot renovate units on schedule or on budget because they simply don't have the logistical infrastructure, the staff to do it, let alone the supply chain. Okay. And then to your point, materials have gone up, you know, very, very, very high the last couple of years. And so it's very difficult, you know, to put these things together. For us, you know, a couple of years ago, we were fortunate. To where we we basically created contracts direct to overseas manufacturers. Okay, so we control our supply chain one hundred percent. So we have we have contracts with the manufacturer who's also the distributor. So our manufacturer has plants in Taiwan, Malaysia, Vietnam, and Shanghai. So we're
0: and talking cabinets, countertops, appliances everything.
1: Yep, exactly. I'll, I'll go over everything in the so so we're kind of unique in the sense Nick that so mo- most of the most of our competition in both Phoenix and Dallas is when they're going into an 80s product they're basically resurfacing countertops, they're painting the cabinets, maybe put some hardware on there, they'll take the white appliances out, put in black appliances, maybe some newer floor, but that's about it because that's that's the only thing that makes sense. When you spend that much money, you you can't you can't justify spending much more money. And we used to do that a few years ago. Well, once we were able to take the supply chain in-house and buy the materials directly wholesale and get wholesale pricing, we've upgraded to a much higher level scope. So we do brand new gray vinyl plank flooring. We do a real quartz countertop with undermount sinks. We have modern plumbing pull-down fixtures, subway tile backsplash, stainless steel appliances, brand new cabinet boxes with shaker doors and brush nickel hardware, two-tone paint, LED lighting package new baseboard. So it's a full interior scope. So we go in there and we strip a unit down to the studs. And when we're done, it looks like a class A luxury interior finish, but it's in a workforce housing type of product, which is still affordable where the majority of the population lives. And that allows us to drastically increase the rents, which increases the value of the property, gets us the profit margin for investors. A few years ago to do that scope, that would cost us, I mean, even even now, that's going to cost you minimum 25 to 30K all in per unit for interiors for materials and labor. So we have flat flat rate contracts with our supplier where we pay fifteen dollars to $16,000 a unit all in. That's for labor and materials. And so to answer your question, no, we have not had any price changes the last two years. We haven't had any issues with inflation or supply chain issues because we have these contracts in place. And our, our manufacturer, to answer your earlier question, They manufacture everything inside that unit that I just mentioned, with the exception of the adhesive for the vinyl plank, like the glue for the flooring, they outsource. And then they use a third party to get the appliances, but we still buy it through the manufacturer. They don't manufacture, but we we buy it through them at discounted prices. So we're basically giving them forecasts 90 days and 180 days out of what we need. And we're buying hundreds of units worth of materials well in advance. So they manufacture it. They ship it overseas and they have two warehouses in the US. One is in Phoenix, one is in Dallas. Okay, so we have the same supply chain, the same logistical process in both markets. They ship it to their warehouse. And then when we when we go doing, do a due, a due diligence for a property, when we're doing our inspections on the front end of a contract, they come to the property with us and they walk every single floor plan. They take measurements. So they know the exact amount of flooring, the, the exact amount of countertops, cabinets, for that exact floor plan. And so in their warehouse, they're custom assembling these kits for each floor plan. They drop two pallets inside the unit and our guys go in there and open up the pallet, and it has the exact amount of flooring for that unit it has the prefabricated quartz countertop they've already assembled the cabinets so we just hang the cabinets and so we'll just we'll just go in and the flooring guys will bang out 10 units in a day or two the flooring and then the cabinet guys come in and paint and so it's very you know kind of like a assembly line so to speak and so we're fortunate to have that in place where we control the supply chain and we do all the construction management in-house as well okay so in addition to property management like property management for listeners who don't understand that means that the on-site manager, the leasing agent, the maintenance—that's all of our W-2 staff. Okay, they, we, we employ them, but we also have a cons- construction management team, an asset management team, which basically oversees all the contractors. Okay, so our staff is walking units every single day, making sure they're staying on schedule and on budget. So it gives us, you know, a lot of efficiencies and a lot of control. Where we can crank through it. Right now, I'm pretty sure we're renovating more units in Arizona than anybody a month. Like right now in February of 2023, at the time of this reporting, we're renovating 178 units across the portfolio. Um, And and we'll probably do um, over a thousand this year, you know, easily. And and, and to that point, if if we want to get into it, Nick, I can talk about our strategy, but we're actively increasing the velocity renovations this year um, because of economic conditions. Um, And I can go into that if you want to, but that's kind of what we've done from a supply chain perspective. Most operators we've seen that are using third party management, and, and it's not their fault, it just is what it is. We used to use third party management a few years ago. They don't have the control, and it, it's very difficult to manage these operations because it's just so many, so many logistics, right? Where you're trying to get materials, manage contractors. And when the, the more you add volume and scale, it becomes that much more difficult. So we've we've really built all that stuff out.
0: Yeah, I think the thing that really kind of stood out to me there is you're, you is you're really kind of found your niche, whether it be it, like, I guess you know exactly what flooring is going in pretty much in every single property, uh, or pretty much the same hardware, same cabinet. Where if it's a property manager and they have, let's say, a construction division and they're representing eight different owners, they have to either convince that owner to use their regularly selected stuff or they have to then kind of they're just playing. do a la carte. And it really creates that inefficiencies. And I also see a lot of these property management companies who kind of just start the construction division because the owners are asking them to. And they're maybe stronger on the uh, you know property management or maybe vice versa. They're stronger on the construction, but they're not great at both. And I, I think that the the people who get, you know, I guess tied in with, uh, you know, folks like yourself who uh, are really really driving home the value of we're, we're bringing our efficiencies or our vertical integration to the equation. You guys can really uh, likely be at the front of the line for leasing and you know, and returns uh, just because of what you guys are setting yourselves up to do. It, really fascinating stuff. It's um, a great
1: it's, it's a great point. Like you're right. I mean, we use, when we use third party management to your point to build on that. So the, the reality is people don't realize property management is a crappy business model. Okay. It's very low profit margin. They make their money by doing the construction. Okay. Cause they can make much more bigger margins on construction management. And to your point, most of them have no clue what they're doing. Okay, they, they don't do a good job at it at all. And so what we've done is we've created three separate companies. Rise Forty Eight Equity is our equity investment company. Rise Forty Eight Communities is our property management company. Rise Forty Eight Construction is our construction company. And we have leadership at each one of these, and they're all different silos, and they have to communicate with each other, but they're all separated, right? And there's 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 structure and people running that, and and it is very important. And to your point. When you're a third party you've got different owners and and some people don't want to renovate some people want to renovate quickly you have no control over what your your volume looks like so then you have no control over your purchasing power right like we, we know we're doing the exact same materials in every single unit it's just rinse and repeat we stamp out the same thing we buy the same types of properties same vintage same business plan and we just crank through the same thing so you know we have that that wholesale buying power but if you don't it just makes it it makes it difficult
0: So let's take that, uh, you know, that kind of vision of what you guys are doing. And let's look on the other side of of the market right now. Inflation looks a little sticky. Interest rates are continuing to go up. Uh, Likely that we will probably still have elevated interest rates for the rest of the year. What are you guys doing to structure a deal to make sure it works right now? Are you guys, uh, you know, looking at HUD deals? Are you looking at Fannie and Freddie? Are you looking at uh, you know, ground leases? How are you stacking that that capital stack together to make it, uh, you know, make it work for today, but also thinking about the future when potentially money is a little bit more affordable and there could be an opportunity to refinance or sell?
1: Yep, yeah, great, great question, Nick. And so to give people an idea you know, we've done all types of different loans since we started. Okay. We've bought 40 deals since we started. We've done 10 year fixed rate Freddie Mac loans. We've done 10 year um, Freddie Mac floating rate loans, and we've done debt fund bridge loans that are floating rate. Okay. We, I know everybody's saying, a lot of people are saying a general sentiment is like the sky is falling. You need to do fixed rate financing. That's the only way to go. We hundred percent disagree. Okay. We think it's very short-sighted to put in fixed rate debt on apartment buildings right now, unless unless it's like a class A, you're gonna hold for seven to 10 or more years, okay? But for what we do, these are five year, we're basically telling investors we're gonna double their money in five years or less, okay? And we've been doing it much less in, in the past. Um, so these are not long-term holds, these are value add deals and we're trying to churn the money in 1031 exchange it. And so two of our earliest deals that we bought were 10 year Freddie Mac fixed rate loans. And it was a mistake. And we just didn't know any better because we didn't have the experience. And I'll explain why it's a mistake. Okay. Whenever you do a fixed rate loan, whether it's Freddie Mac, Fannie Mae, a bank, whomever, the the lender is guaranteeing your interest rate won't change, you know, for the duration of that loan. And so they have exposure on their end as a lender. If interest rates go up, then they'll get hit. So the way that they cover themselves is they hit you with a very nasty prepay penalty called yield maintenance or defeasance, which means that if it's a 10-year loan and you sell the deal after two years, you're going to pay the lender the yield that they would have made on all 10 years after two years. As an example, we bought a deal in Phoenix in 2019, 10-year Freddie Mac's fix, fixed rate loan, and you know we we renovated a bunch of units, pushed NOI, the market was hot. We sold it in 2021 and we had and it was a yield maintenance prepay. We had three million dollar prepay cash right off the top, three million dollars right out of investors' pockets that would have been profit as a yield maintenance. And and we when we were when we were getting ready to calculate that, calculate the prepay and sell it, we're like, oh crap, like this thing is is massive. We had to hold that deal for eight months longer than we even wanted to, so we could keep renovating more units, increase NOI, so that we could absorb this massive prepay and still net out our investors over a 2x return, which we did. If we had a flexible prepay, it would have been a 3x return. Okay, and so basically we're we're lucky the market was strong and we could still get out of that loan. If you get into a fixed rate loan with a nasty prepay, you have very little flexibility and it make, and it makes it so you cannot adapt. And And people think, well, maybe we don't need to sell that fast. Well, you also cannot refinance. Because remember when you're refinancing, you're paying off the first loan, okay? And if, if, that, if that prepay penalty is so big that you don't have enough proceeds for the new loan to pay that off, you can't get out of the loan, okay? And so we've learned our lesson doing two of those. And, and we like Freddie Mac floating rate. We like um, debt fund bridge loan floating rate. And we've done, you know, several recently right now to answer your question. We like the debt fund bridge loan floating rate loan. And so I know a lot of people, they hear, they hear bridge loan they say, oh no, that sounds very risky. Like, why would you do that? To give people an idea, we've done like 25 of these debt fund bridge loans now we've always been a lower leverage group. We've always been between 60 to 70% loan to value. I think we have three deals that are highest loan to value we ever did with 75%. Okay, so very, very low leverage. Um, right now, the reason we like that type of product is that we're even lower leverage now. We're like 50 to 60% loan to value. Okay, so we have a 40 to 50% down payment. And it's uh, it's typically like a three plus one plus one term. Meaning it's a three-year term, a two one-year extension. So it can be a five-year term if we want to the entire term of the loan is interest only payments and then something that's unique about these debt fund bridge loans as compared to Freddie Mac is that the the debt fund will finance 100% of your renovation dollars okay and what's called future funding and so which is significant right now because to give people an idea a year or two ago we were raising like 30 to 35% of the equity 30 to 40% of the equity relative to the purchase price now we're raising at least 60 to 75 percent equity relative to purchase price because we have we have a low low leverage so higher down payment we are buying very low interest rate caps which i'll go into here shortly that'll be my next point and so the point is is that these equity raises are getting enormous and if we have to raise all the renovation dollars up front on top of that it dilutes investor returns okay with a freddie mac loan so the debt fund bridge loan is nice because it's still low leverage conservative you know six, 50 to 60 percent loan to value How it works is that when we buy a deal, we close, we're fronting the cash to immediately start renovating interiors, exteriors. And then quarterly, we submit draws to the lender to reimburse us for what we've spent. Okay. So they're financing all those CapEx dollars. And then the biggest reason we like it is because it's a flexible prepay penalty. Okay. And so these debt funds right now, and this is how they've been the last several years, most of them just want to see 18 months of total interest payments. Meaning you own the deal for 18 months and you could sell it or refi after 18 months. You have no prepay. Penalty whatsoever. Okay. So that allows you to truly maximize investor returns upon a sale or a refi and and really gives you flexibility to get out of that loan and and, and floating rate loan. Okay. So some people say, wait a second, that sounds risky. Why would you do a floating rate loan in this environment? Rates right now are seven and a half, eight percent. So here's what we do to mitigate against the floating rate loan we buy a very low interest rate cap on the front end. Okay. So similar to how on a single family home, you can you can basically buy down your interest rate on the front end. That's effectively what we're doing. We're prepaying the interest for this debt fund bridge loan, and we're buying a very low in-the-money cap. For example, we have a Phoenix deal right now that we're going to close soon, and we've bought a, a very low cap on the front end where our max interest rate for the first three years is 4.75%. It cannot go over 4.75%. No matter what happens with the Fed, the Treasury, the indexes, that's our max interest rate. And then we can put in our assumptions for everything using that max interest rate and feel comfortable.
0: Okay. And so, so let's talk about the cost of that. Can you yeah. break that down a little bit?
1: Yep. Yeah. So to give people an idea, these interest rate caps is kind of like an insurance company,
0: right? It's because basically
1: they're paying whatever the interest rate is over that. And so it's equivalent to like, if you're like in your 20s and healthy and you want to get life insurance, you're going to have very low low uh, insurance, right? But if you're 70 and you have health issues, your insurance can be very expensive. These interest rate caps are enormously expensive right now, okay? That cap that I just mentioned like a year or two ago would have been 30 to 50K. Right now, it's like $2 million, okay? So it's, it's a significantly expensive cap. But the way that we model these is that You know, we don't we don't want to have interest rate risk. And so we basically raise that money on the front end as a closing cost and as part of the total capitalization. And if the deal still pencils with our conservative assumptions and this low interest rate cap, we would rather prepay the interest up front, knowing that it can't change on us and that our model is sound um, instead of, you know, trying to 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 guess when interest rates and SOFR may come down. And so, yeah, it, it is very expensive. And that's that's part of, you know, what you have to consider is, you know, can I raise this additional equity? Um, is this worth it? You know, some private equity groups might say, well, I don't wanna overpay for the, the 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 interest rate cap because if interest rates go down next year, you overpaid. For us, we're like, you know what? The deal pencils, we're getting it on a good basis. We're at least protecting against the downside. Um, and, and we're assuming it's like 0% organic rent growth in year one right now for all of our deals in Phoenix and in Dallas. And so that's how we're doing deals right now. And that's that's the best way that we think you can do it. I think a Freddie floater is still a good option as well, where you buy a low cap, you have flexible prepay. You're just going to have to raise those those CapEx dollars. And so that's so kind of how we...
0: What are you doing to model out after year three? You know, if you're at a 4.5% interest rate on your cap, are you guys modeling a sale at that point? Or are you guys just... Hopeful that interest rates will be much lower, and your increased uh, rent that you've achieved over these three years of of operations would would offset any type of of you know yeah. Good question. Yeah,
1: so we don't we don't model out a sale after year three. There's a few different options that we have so that we can pivot and have flexibility. First off, what we've always done since day one is that we've raised significant operational reserves on the front end of every deal. Okay. So by by that, I mean that we overcapitalize deals on purpose where we'll have 10% of the equity is just cash reserves sitting in the property level account. This is completely separate from interest rate, interest reserves, capex reserves. This is just, this is just rainy day cash. And that's honestly why we're in good shape right now. There's many operators across the country right now. I know because investors are telling me that are doing capital calls. Okay. Because they're running out of, they're running out of, liquidity at the property level and capitals. We've never done a capital call. We have no concerns of doing any of them. We don't plan on doing anything on in, any deal in 2023 or 2024. And a big reason is because we've been lower leverage. We've always purchased three-year interest rate caps, whereas some people are buying one or two-year caps, and we have these, these cash reserves in place. So to answer your question, Nick, there's a few different options. We feel confident we can go in and renovate units, increase NOI, okay? And so one of our options is, Like, let's say we cannot sell the deal prior to three years, okay? Well, we may be able to refinance into like a 10-year Freddie Mac loan because we've increased, even if interest rates don't come down, if we increase NOI, we qualify for more loan proceeds and we can get out of that, you know, that three-year term and that three-year interest rate cap. When you do a refinance, you can use those new loan proceeds to buy a new cap, okay? So if I refi out of that initial three-year cap and that three-year loan and I get into a 10-year Freddie Mac loan, I can actually get another three year cap on, on top of that. And then I could, you know, look to sell it, sell it a year or two later if, if I wanted to. Or another option is we could sell the deal prior to three years, or some maybe some investors will say, well, what if you can't, cause I get these questions every week. What if we can't sell or refi prior to three years? Well, on the loan, it's a three year loan with two one year extensions. So we can use our extensions to make it a five year loan. The interest rate cap expires after three years. We can use our cash reserves that we have in place to buy a new cap, okay? So there's a lot of different, there's really three routes that we have here. We can refi before that time, sell before that time, or use cash reserves to buy a new cap and kind of extend that out. And historically speaking, you know, recessions last 18 to 24 months, and then things start, start to recover, right? And so, you know, to your point earlier, nobody knows what will happen with interest rates, but what a lot of people are saying, what I think will happen, I think that, You know, we're recording this like mid-February right now. I think there'll be another 25 basis point hike. Hopefully around the summertime, the Fed stops and we hit a plateau. I don't think rates will come down this year. Um, Hopefully they plateau and then they'll start to cut rates beginning of next year. But if once, if and when, more like when, when there's a plateau, whenever that will be, when they say, okay, we're not going to keep increasing rates, that will take a lot of the uncertainty out of it. And you've got to remember that there's all these massive private equity groups right now and REITs and lenders that have been on the sidelines since like Q2 in the summer of last year. And so I talked, I was at a private equity event in Laguna a few weeks ago, and I was on a panel with like Blackstone and these other big REITs. And even these guys were saying like, they think that it's going to be similar to what we saw during COVID, where you have all this pent up capital that has not been deployed, people are falling behind. And once we hit a ceiling on the interest rate hikes, there's not as much volatility. These groups can start underwriting to that and say, okay, this is the price we'll pay and they have to start putting out capital. Lenders will start to cut their spreads, which which, to give people an idea, an interest rate is made up of two two factors. One is the spread, which is basically the profit margin the lender makes, which is flat, it's fixed. And then that floats over the index, okay? The index is the SOFR index for most of these commercial loans. And that's that's basically correlating with the Fed funds rates. Every time the Fed increases rates, SOFR goes up, your all-in interest rate goes up. These lenders, and we've already started to see it happen, Nick, in the last eight weeks. Okay, these debt funds have been coming back. Uh, we have been seeing it. We just signed up a couple of loans in the last two weeks with them because they're cutting their spreads. Where if they cut their spread, they cut the all-in-interest rate because they want to incentivize borrowers to borrow money because they have to put that money out. You know, these, these are big, massive publicly traded companies. They're paying dividends to investors. They have to put that capital out to get a yield and pay those distributions. And so. We think like summer second half of this year, you know, if we hit a plateau, you should start to see more capital come back in the market, especially next year, 2024, once rates start to get cut, hopefully once that happens, what you'll see cap rates will start to compress values will go up very quickly. And so right now with our portfolio, we're, we're significantly increasing velocity of renovations where like all of our 2021 deals, we want to have fully renovated by the end of this year. And like the 2022 deals have like at least halfway renovated, so that we maximize NOI, so that worst case scenario we can refi out of those three year loans, because we've sold eleven deals already since we started. The longest deal that we that we've owned that we currently have under management we bought in June of 2021, so that three year cap will expire in June of 2024. Okay, so our plan is to renovate all the units, and by the end of this year, early early Q1, we're going to refi out of that loan into a 10 year Freddie Mac loan and buy a new cap. And then next year, if rates come down, we're going to be in a position where cap rates compress, values go up. We have really high NOI at our assets. We renovated all the units. We should be able to sell these deals and hit strong returns. And it was like a two to three year, two to three year hold. So that that's kind of our strategy and how we're pivoting right now. But um, that, that's what we're doing.
0: Makes a lot of sense. And you know, that's a unique unique approach on the the interest rate caps. Uh, I've seen a lot of different takes on it. Uh, I agree with you on the fixed rate debt. Uh, if you put that exposure over to the banks, you know they're gonna they're gonna get you um, one way or another. They're gonna make their they're gonna make their money. Um, you know, certainly it's easier to to kind of look and and worry about uh, like if if you're worried about interest rates going um, going up. I think you know kind of going back if we were to rewind the clock to uh, you know 2020 when money was basically free. Uh, right. You know, I think there's a lot of lessons learned that people will. Uh, put very cheap caps in place. Uh, you know there's just a lot of opportunities when when money's that cheap. Uh, you could do swap loans and and make sure that you're uh, getting protected on the on the, the the downside of of interest rates going up, but you still get you know you get a bought out uh, bought out of that from the bank. So there's a lot right. of different things on the on the financing piece. I you know appreciate you kind of breaking that that down for us completely shifting topics. One of the last things I want to ask about, certainly in the news and maybe not so much in the real estate sector, but I am fascinated to to hear if you have anything on artificial intelligence and how it might disrupt real estate, whether it be construction, renting, leasing, uh, office management, whatever it might be, uh, you know, how do you see some of the new stuff that's coming out uh, potentially changing? Yeah,
1: yeah, good question. Yeah, good question. So So I'll first give the disclaimer, like I'm not a tech guy. Okay. I don't know a lot about tech, but I'll tell you that we have a director of property marketing, Josh here at our team, and he's very tech savvy. And he's basically responsible for overseeing lead generation marketing for the property manager company at the property level. And so one thing that we recently started using is AI leasing. Okay. And so basically, um, what it does is that we we basically can, you know, turn this on where it's after hours and on the weekend. So if somebody calls our, if somebody calls the office and they don't have our normal office person there, or they go online to like inquire about an apartment, then basically it's going to automatically start texting them. Okay. And it's called the AI thing. It's called Lisa. Okay. So Lisa will text the tenant or the prospective tenant and answer any of the questions that they have. Okay. So if they say, do you have any one bedrooms available? Yes, we have these available. These are the prices. When do you want to move in? And so Lisa actually will set up tours, tours for us. And so like we had a, we do bi-weekly operations meetings with our staff. We go through every single property and it's just a few weeks ago over a, a weekend, Lisa set up 20 tours at one property. Okay. So basically they schedule these tours It auto fills the site manager's calendar. And so all they have to do is focus on closing those leads okay instead of getting bogged down with the admin of taking inbound calls and the reality is is like the the on-site manager and the leasing agent they get busy like if if you have a tenant that already lives there who's who's at the office for something whatever it may be or there's like a maintenance request or whatever it is they could miss the phone call and then the tenant will go to the next apartment building okay and so and we actually have it set right now where if they miss the phone call um they're gonna get they're gonna go to a voicemail it's gonna say Um, Hey, we're sorry. We'll get back to you. Uh, It's going to say, Hey, this is Lisa. I'm going to text you right now. So they don't even know it's a bot. They think it's a real person. And so Lisa is like texting them, you know, answering their questions and trying to set up a tour. And then it pops into the calendar and that onsite manager can just focus on touring and and closing the, the leases. And so that's critical right now because, I mean, you talked about supply. I mean, in every big market, Phoenix, Dallas, Atlanta, these huge markets, there's a ton of apartment buildings, right? And these people within like a three mile radius where they wanna live could find a bunch of pro- properties, right? And, it's, and a lot of it is like, it's all about, they have short attention span. So it's like, if I don't get a hold of you, I'm going to the next one and okay, I like this one. These people are ready. I like it. The price is good. Boom, I'm gonna sign the lease. And you lost that lead forever. And so that's been a big thing that's really helped us a lot because last year, early last year, we actually brought in corporate leasing staff. We, we hired three full-time people at our corporate office here. Who were just taking inbound calls and setting up tours, so that we weren't missing them at the onsite level, and they were doing pretty good. But now this AI leasing has kind of blown them out of the water. So, so honestly, we're like cutting back that department because um, we don't really need it um, because this this has fulfilled that. You know, one other thing that we're using—I don't know if you want to call it AI or something—but it's it's a it's a tech um, advantage resource that we're using is we're we're to do geofencing at the properties. So, like within a five-mile radius of the asset. It will target, and obviously, like, I'm kind of against this stuff personally, but it has like data profiles on people. So anybody who's like recently gone on apartments.com or Zumper or Zillow, any of these websites, it's tracking their data. And then if they're in a five mile radius of our property, whether they're at the store or whatever they're doing, they start getting banner ads pop up on their Instagram and social media saying, you know, Rise Biltmore, um, Rise Biltmore, rent an apartment now, 1200 bucks. And so it's going to start, you know, doing that. And, and we, we, we tested it for a few months on like five assets that had slower leasing. And you never know if it's directly correlated, but those five assets all of a sudden, all of a sudden started getting boosts, you know, and leads. And so we, we try all these different things. I mean, one thing that we do too, uh, Nick is we use what are called like dynamic QR codes. And so um, basically, like, let's say we print out a 1000 little pamphlets and keep them in the office of the property as a QR code. And it's basically to leave a review. Okay. And so like our onsite manager, if, if they had a good tour or there's a tenant who lives there who's happy, say, hey, do you mind just putting your phone in the QR code and leave a five-star review and um, so we can start to boost it? Well, on the back end, we can set to where that review goes, okay? So like we can, we can say, okay, today the reviews are going to Google, okay? Because maybe we want to get our Google score up or, or say that you know, we want to get our apartments.com score up because somebody complained recently. We're going to leave it on apartments.com. So everybody who does that QR code for the next two weeks the, those reviews are going to that site. You, you cannot have it go to multiple sites at once, but we use a, a company called reputation.com that's tracking every single site on the web. That's what they say anyways, um, where people can leave reviews about your property. And so it's telling you if there's a negative review, a positive review from any, any feed or site, and then, it, and then it detects trends. So it's like, if you had like three people in the last month complain about a pothole at this asset, you know, you need to go fix that. And, and maybe they were all giving you a low review on Google, Um, So you can put the QR code, you know, to, to, to go towards Google and get that, that score up. So those are some of the things that we're using. And so I think a lot of people, and even me included a couple of years ago, when you think of tech, you think of that's for class A luxury apartment buildings, right? Because they have nice amenities. Well, not necessarily like we're, we're using it for lead generation. And we made a big point to do this in like summer Q3 of last year, where the writing was on the wall where organic rent growth is slowing. And I was telling Josh, I was like, we need to be proactive, like invest whatever you need to do. Just throw every single marketing resource you have at our properties so that we don't see, you know, a, a, a step down in performance. And so I think that's, that's been a, that's been helpful. I mean, it it gets, it's expensive. So a lot of third-party management companies won't do it because it just doesn't make sense for them profit margin wise. But for us, we started the management company. We don't, we don't need it to make money. We just need it to break even, right? We, we started it to help the operations, which makes the equity, it makes the investors happy, the properties perform. And then our high profit margin business, the equity company, you know, does well. So that's kind of some of the stuff we're doing for the the tech.
0: Well, certainly I see those are, those are like the low hanging fruit. And I think those are the, the items that are ready to go right now. And I think people who are not using, you know, even like geofencing or, you know, kind of just using some of the platforms that are out there to their fullest are really going to be left behind uh, because you got to meet people where they're at and they're on their phone yeah. and they're not necessarily walking to your property or coming to see you in person until they see it online. Um, so that, that's neat. I I do think that there's going to be, you know, robotics, uh, you know, that'll be quite fascinating to watch over the next 10 years, maybe not, you know, a one or two year disruption or anything like that. Smart locks are certainly coming in uh, a lot faster and maybe surveillance on the properties. There's going to be something that will be be able to even tie into the marketing piece where, you know, if you know somebody's at home, then all of a sudden you're maybe generating in a whole nother uh, avenue of revenue for the, for a property. If you're trying to, um, you know, kind of, you know, send people targeted advertising, it will be interesting to see how it all shakes out, but no, I uh, you know, technology is definitely coming quickly. That's for sure. No, hundred percent. Yeah, it's it's important to kind of keep up on it and see what you can use to get an advantage, for sure. Well, Zach, really dynamic conversation. I appreciate you kind of covering a whole lot of different uh, topics and you know what you're doing right now in 2023. Uh, hopefully, we see some more stability. But you know, your your kind of outlook is uh, is bright, and it sounds like uh, there's there's a lot of things to look forward to, especially at Rise. Uh, 48 And if people want to get in touch with you, what should they do? Yeah.
1: Thanks so much, Nick. Really appreciate it, man. Yeah. You guys can go to our website, RISE48, so R-I-S-E-4-8-Equity.com. And you can actually set up a call with me. If you're, if you're interested to learn about investing, you can shoot me an email. If you have any questions, it's Zach, Z-A-C-H at RISE48Equity.com and look forward to talking to everybody. And thanks so much, Nick. Really appreciate you having us on and, and we had a, a fun time here today.